I'm down in the valley and everything's falling apart. Whether I'm dealing something right now in my life or whatever the future may bring, the present or what's to come, I'm persuaded. I'm persuaded that nothing can separate me from the love of God that's been given to me in Christ Jesus. Nothing moves me. It's still well with my soul. Why? Because I don't care about Him? No. Because my security and my foundation of my life was not built in anything but the love of God for me. And it's only then that we are strong enough and secure enough that we can truly begin to give love and understanding to others. That's why Paul says in Ephesians 3, this isn't the message today, but this is what's in my heart right now to share, that being rooted and grounded in love, we can come to know together with all the saints the width of His love, the height of His love, and the depth of His love. Only when we understand and know in our own lives the extent of His love for us and have built our lives on that and not on other things. Amen? Amen. It's well with my soul. Sometimes we need to tell ourselves, it's well with my soul. It's well with my soul. It's well with my soul. Especially when your soul doesn't feel so well, that's when you need to tell yourself, David, King David talked to his soul. Bless the Lord, O my soul. That's not just quoting a psalm. He's talking to his soul, saying, Soul, bless the Lord. And then he said, Why? He said it twice. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not what he's done for me. Who's, who's, who's forgiven all my iniquities. Who's healed all my diseases. Talk a little bit about that tonight. Delivered my life from destruction. Crowned me with loving kindness and tender mercies. And satisfied my mouth with good things. That's your testimony too if you're saved. So you need to do what he does. Say, Lord, soul, bless the Lord. I will bless the Lord at all times. At all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. And let us exalt His name together. Hallelujah. I'm getting just stirred up right there. Woo! <laughs> That's not how I felt when I came up here. You know you can change how you feel. In fact, you need to sometimes. You need to sometimes. And that's the challenge most Christians have. They're led and they built their life on how they feel. And when you do that, you're in Satan's territory. You're in Satan's territory. Amen? Well, let's pray. We need to get into the message. Father, we thank you for the Word of God that strengthens us and encourages us. And we declare to you as your children, as some of us just by gritting our teeth this morning as a statement of faith, Lord, it is well with my soul. Thank you for your amazing grace and your goodness and your faithfulness and your patience and your love in our lives. Father, now we turn to your word. Because you're a loving father, you speak to us, to your children. You speak to us words of encouragement, words sometimes of correction, Sometimes words of challenge. But whatever the word is, it is what we need at that time. 
And so, Father, now as we open your word, this living word that's different than any other word because it is your word today to us as a church and your word today to us personally, individually, we ask you by the Spirit of God that you would take this word and quicken it into our hearts, breathe on it the breath of life, and may it become alive in our hearts. Help us to see today what we've not seen before and hear today what in our hearts we've never heard before and to begin to grasp and understand in our hearts what our hearts have not grasped and understood before. Holy Spirit, do in our lives this morning what only you can do. We look to you for the power of the Holy Spirit, that we're not just taught words and concepts and principles but that our hearts are moved and our lives are changed from the inside out because of your word today. And for the grace to do that and to receive it, we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Daniel chapter 3. And we're going to attempt to finish this part of our study that we began last week, which has to do with worship. We've been studying for almost a year now, worship, and I've had times when I've wondered, you know, is it, is it that important? And as I got into this, God began to open my eyes, especially to what we're talking about here. I began to see how critical worship is for my life, how critical worship is for a church, how critical it is in God's eyes that we be true worshipers. We're not going to go back over the study that we did or even remind us of the study in John chapter 4 about true worship, which is in spirit and in truth. We began to look in these verses last week and Daniel, the story of Daniel. And of course, it's this part of the story is the story of the three Hebrew children. These are in, in about 600 BC, King Nebuchadnezzar came to Judah, the southern nation. The northern nation was already gone and began to conquer it. He seized the city and when he, when he, when he got control, he started by bringing the people of, of Judah, the children of, Israel, of Judah, the Hebrew children, into, back over into Babylon, and he did it in three different trips, three different waves. Now, not all of them were brought. There was a remnant that was left in Israel. But of the first group, he chose the elect, the strongest, the smartest, the youngest, the, the, the ones that could bring the most benefit immediately to the king. And we learn in chapter 1, of those groups, there were four that were named to us. And they're, they're, they're Daniel... And then there's three Hebrew children to which are given the names Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. When they got into Babylon, they were given Babylonian names, and Daniel was given a Babylonian name about the Shazar. And so we looked at that last week. And then we've in chapter 3, we're seeing that, that along the, once they were in, Israel, in, in Babylon, what happens, of course, is that um, the king, they're trained, and we'll look at, that's what we're going to look at this morning. They were trained to serve the king. And because of the way they handled that, God's favor was on them. So King Nebuchadnezzar, after all of this, has a dream. And it's a troubling dream to him. And so he brings all of his seers and his gurus in and the people that do pharaoh cards and tea leaves and Ouija boards and all the psychics he brings in. And he says, I had this dream and I need you to tell me what this dream means. But in order to know that you're really hearing and you really understand spiritual things, you tell me the dream and then you tell me what it means. And if you don't tell me the dream or you're wrong, your life is forfeited. If you tell me the dream, I'm going to elevate you and bless you beyond anything you've ever imagined. 
So you choose. And they all ran away in fear, except one of them said, you know, there's a Hebrew, there's a young, one of those young Hebrew men, and he has the ability, his God has given him the ability to understand dreams. And so they bring Daniel up. And Daniel says, and see, this is part of Daniel's secret with God. He was very humble. And the king says, I understand that you can interpret dreams. And Daniel says, I can't understand anything unless my God shows it to me. And so Daniel fasts and prays, and God shows him the dream, and God shows him the interpretation of the dream. And because of that, and that's why I spent this time on it, Nebuchadnezzar elevates Daniel and those three Hebrew children to positions of responsibility in the government. And the names they use is satraps and administrators, but they're basically like governors or senators or somebody in a high position of authority in the government. That, to us, that's what that would mean. And then in chapter 3, we saw that there was a challenge that came to them. Nebuchadnezzar decided that he was going to build an image of himself. It's about 90 feet high. And it was going to be made of gold and all kinds of beautiful jewelry and things like that. And that the people were going to worship that. And we saw that the key for the worship... Well, let's go read it. It's in Daniel chapter 3. Verse 4. Then a herald cried aloud to the people, To you it is commanded, O people, nations, and languages, that at the time you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the harp, the lyre, the psaltery, musical instruments, and in symphony... With all kinds of music, you shall fall down and worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar has made. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast immediately into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. So that the time when all the people heard the sound of the horn, the flute, the harp, the lyre, the in symphony, with all kinds of music, all the people, the nations, and the languages fell down and worshiped the golden image which Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So what we saw last week is that... The Hebrew children have been taken into a foreign land that worships foreign gods and has a foreign authority and that has standards and values that are not based on the principles of the, of the kingdom of God, but they're very worldly, they're very, in some ways, demonic principles. And the three Hebrew children, and as well as others, are now forced to live in this land that is a foreign country to them with foreign gods and foreign principles. What we saw last week is what... And they, but yet God gives them favor and elevates them. And what we saw was challenged in their life. It wasn't their belief system. What was challenged in their life was who they were going to worship. And they were commanded, along with everybody else, to worship this dumb idol. Dumb because it couldn't speak. It's what Isaiah says about idols that men make. They have eyes, because we made them, but they can't see. They have ears, but they can't hear. They have a mouth, but they can't speak. They have hands, but they can't help you. Why? Because you made them. Man made them. See, nothing we've made can bring us out of what we put ourselves into. Only something that's stronger and greater than we are can bring us and rescue out of where we've put ourselves. In sin, in, in rebellion, or whatever it is. We're going to talk a little bit more about that down the road. And so, but the, what we learned last week was it wasn't just some innocent thing to bow and before this 90-foot idol because that idol represented the king 
and his authority that God gave to him. We learned a while ago that because God is Adonai, the only true authority in this earth is authority God gives. And one of the lessons of, of the book of Daniel is that God is sovereign when it comes to authority. And so the authority that, that, that Nebuchadnezzar had, which in his nation, in his realm, because he conquered a good part of the known world at that time, his authority came from God. And yet he raised himself up to be equal or higher than God by not even acknowledging the true God, but holding himself up to be God. And then requiring that all of his subject worship him as God. That's what's at stake in that idol. And we learned last time that what's involved in worship is being in awe of something, recognizing something as greater than you are. Well, Nebuchadnezzar was not greater than anybody else. He was just as human as everybody else. But they were required to honor him as being greater and more worthy than they are. We saw that worship is not only honoring something, but it's reverencing something. It's giving your heart and revering and, and loving something else besides you. And so they were required to reverence the king. And the most significant thing we saw is that worship required a bowing down. A bowing down represents a submitting to acknowledging that someone is an authority in your life and you're submitting yourself, you're putting yourself under their authority, you're putting yourself under their value system, you're putting yourself under the spirit that operates through them, you're putting yourself under them to begin to speak into your lives. This is why you have to be very careful who you listen to in spiritual things. The Bible says there are many voices out there and none of them have no significance. In other words, all of them have some significance. Years ago was a man that ran a men's ministry, Edwin Lewis Cole. One of the principles he taught was that whoever you listen to, whoever you sit under, you not only receive them, but you receive the spirit that's behind them. So you can sit to something and say, well, I, I understand that that's not all right, but you know, there's some good things in there. It's the spirit that's behind it. And then we looked last time that what signaled them to bow down was a sound. A sound. And not just any sound. It wasn't a, tr a herald trumpeting with a trumpet, you know, da -da 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 -da, and then, then he had to bow down. It was a sound of music. And they were trained, they were trained by the music that they listened to, that when they heard that, they were to bow down and to submit to this image of Nebuchadnezzar. And we realized last week in our study that ultimately it wasn't Nebuchadnezzar they were worshiping, it was the spirit that was behind him. And we saw that that spirit ultimately, if you trace it back, was Satan himself. Because what he desires, he's jealous and envious of people worshiping the true and living God. And so he does all of his gimmicks and schemes and subtlety to get us to worship him and not the true and the living God. There's some evidence that in heaven, before he fell, that he was an angel in charge of worship. There's some evidence of that. And so worship in his sight is what he's really after. And just because we're Christians doesn't mean we're not capable of worshiping Him. 
And so what we saw last time is that they were trained, that nation was trained over a period of time that by the music that they listened to and the sounds that they listened to to very subtly submit themselves to, 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 to worship the king and the image that represented the king. And we talked about why that's relevant to us today. Because in many ways now today as Christians, we're living in a foreign land. It wasn't so 10, 15, 20 years ago, but it's much more so today. A land that no longer recognizes and honors the values of the Bible or recognizes and honors the Bible itself. Most of our leaders now may play lip service to it, but they're following an agenda that is not a godly or God-ordained or God-inspired agenda. And ultimately what is behind it is a spirit of the Antichrist. Ultimately what's being laid as a foundation for what Revelation talks about, that's being laid right now and we as a church, as believers, have to be very discerning of the times that we're in and what is really going on and what is really at stake. And what I sensed in my spirit why this was important to look at now is because ultimately what we're going to get challenged on is who we worship. We're going to be challenged with who we worship. And if we do not understand and experience worship as the significance that it should be in our lives, we'll be very tempted to bow to save our lives. Because, well, after all, it's just singing a bunch of songs. And so what if I can't do it in church? I can do it in my home. I can do it in my car. And we looked at the three Hebrew children because what's found out, well, let's look at it. Let's look at the challenge this morning. The choice that they have to make. Verse 8. Therefore at that time certain Chaldeans came forward and accused the Jews, and they spoke to King Nebuchadnezzar and said, O king, live forever. O king, you made a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the music, of the horn, the harp, the flute, the lyre, the psaltery, played in symphony with all kinds of music, there to bow down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship will be cast in the midst of a burning furnace. But there are certain Jews, verse 12, whom you set over the affairs of the province of Babylon. There are Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, have not paid due regard to you. They do not serve your gods and worship the golden image which you set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in rage and fury, gave command to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So they brought these men before the king, and Nebuchadnezzar spoke, saying to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image which I've set up? Now if you're ready... At the time you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the harp, the lyre, the psaltery, in symphony with all kinds of music, you shall fall down and worship the image which I've made. Then that'll be good. In other words, I'm giving you a second chance. But if you do not worship, you will be cast immediately into the midst of the burning, fiery furnace, and whose God is able to deliver you. So they're being challenged. There's no freedom of religion here in, in, in Babylon. There's no First Amendment rights in Babylon. And we may be coming to the point where our First Amendment rights... If your trust is in the First Amendment, it can change. Our trust has to be in the God. Our trust has to be in the God who saved us, the God who's called us, the God we are already worshiping. So they're commanded and given a second choice. And now they're standing before the king... 
they're not getting a letter or an email or a text message. They're not seeing something on, their, on the king's Facebook page. They're brought before him face to face. And the king is mad. He, it says he's enraged. And he's saying, I'm going to give you a second chance because of what you've done and how good you've been. I'm going to give you... A... Is it true that you won't bow to this image that I've set up for you? Is it true? So the choice they have to make now is either to continue to refuse to worship an idol or violate the first commandment and bow their knee. I shared with you last week, all the king is asking, he's not asking for them to change their heart. He's not asking for them to make a commitment of their heart. He's just asking for some external act of their body just to go when they hear the music. What harm is that? I mean, and keep in mind, if they don't do it, they die. And not just, you know, they're given some nice medicine that puts them to sleep. They're thrown in the furnace, and by the way, it's right over there so they can see it, and they can feel the heat from it, so they can see the consequences of this choice they have to make. And the question we need to ask ourselves, what would we do in that place? What would we do if suddenly our government says, if you worship Jehovah, if you worship Jesus as your Lord, you are going to be lined up. You and your family are going to be immediately executed. What are you going to do? Oh, we're not asking you to change what you believe, but just bow your knee for a moment. What kind of harm can that do? After all, it's the king that's commanding you. We're supposed to honor the king, aren't we? Yeah, but not at the expense of breaking the commandments and of breaking the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. What would you do? Well, let's see what they did. Let's see how they handled this. Verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this manner. Now, they're not being disrespectful. They're saying, we're not subject to your authority when it comes to this. We have no need to answer you in this matter. If that is the case, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us. In other words, if, we ha if, if, if you throw us into the furnace, because he said, whose God is able to deliver you? Our God's able to deliver us. This is a statement of faith. If, we, if, if it's so, if you're going to throw... Because we're not bowing. If, if it's so, you're going to throw us into the furnace. We know who can deliver us. Our God is able to deliver us. Amen? Our God is able to deliver us. Through many dangers, toils, and snares. We sang that earlier. Our God is able to deliver us. And He will deliver us from your hand, O King. But look at verse 18. But if not... If not, let it be known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods, nor will we worship the golden image which you've set up. Stop here a second. This is so important. Because what they're saying is, 
We believe our God not only is able to deliver us, but believe our God will deliver us. But we don't worship Him because He will deliver us. We don't worship Him because He would keep us from the fire. We don't worship Him because He'd let us get in the fire, but He still won't let us be, be burned up. We don't worship Him for that reason, because even if He doesn't deliver us, even if we end up burning up, we're still not going to bow and worship you. In other words, we don't worship our God for what He'll do for us. And this is my concern for the church is we have been programmed. We have been taught all the blessings that come from serving our God. And He does bless, and He does provide, and He does prosper. But if that's the main motive by which, for which we worship God, what are we going to do if suddenly those blessings burn up in a fiery furnace? What are we going to do if suddenly it looks like he's not going to do for us what we think he ought to do for us? Job, with everything he went through and all the things he said wrong and all the mistakes he said, he said, I'll give you the reference. Don't know, go turn there. But let me give you the reference because sometimes you need to go look there. Job 13, 15. In the midst of all his suffering and all the things he was going through, he says, though he slay me, yet I'll trust him. I don't understand it. I can't figure it out. But there comes a point beyond faith. We're, we're to, without faith, it's impossible to please God. For in order to come to Him, you must believe that He is, and He's a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. Hebrews 11.6. But there's a place beyond faith. There's a place where you just trust Him. No matter what happens. You let yourself go into His hands. You let the circumstances go into His hands. That doesn't mean there aren't times you've got to stand and fight, stand and confess the Word. Yes, there are times when you need to do that. But ultimately, if nothing works the way you think it ought to work, what are you going to do? Are you in this? Well, that's what, that's what Satan came to Job, God about. He says, you blessed Job. He was the richest man on the earth at the time. You blessed him. But does he serve you for no reason at all? He's implying Job only serves you because of all you've done for him. And the question we've got to ask ourselves is, why do we worship God? Because whatever the motive is, if that's threatened, you'll stop worshiping. You'll bow. You'll bow. You'll bow. So you can have the greatest intent, but you don't know what you'll do till you get in that situation. You can have the greatest... Well, I would never do that. Well, that's what the children of Israel said over and over again. We looked at this before, but back in Exodus 19, God tells Moses in three days, bring the nation of Israel out to the base of this mountain because I'm going to come down on this mountain and reveal myself in my power and my in my majesty I'm going to reveal myself not all of how I am but I'm going to reveal, reveal my power and the children of Israel went through the preparation on the third day they came out they saw the thunder and lightning on the mountain and they ran away back into their tents and they said to Moses you go talk to God and you listen carefully you go talk to God you get in his presence 
You see his power. You experience his power. You experience his greatness. You experience his majesty. And you find out from him what we're supposed to do. And you come tell us what we're to do. And we will do it. And I believe that they were sincere. I believe that they meant that with all their heart. But stop and look at this. Who was smarter about what we're going to be like? God or us? Who was smarter then? God or the children of Israel? What God said, in because if you read carefully what He's saying, I'm calling you out to see me and my power and my lightning and my thunder to see my majesty and my glory. Why? So that you'll obey me. God knew that they had to see what He was like in order to have enough reverence for Him, what the Bible calls fear of the Lord, so that when push came to shove, when the command to bow or burn came, that they wouldn't bow because they'd seen what this God was like and they couldn't deny Him, they couldn't deny who He was, they would obey Him. But they thought this, their own intentions, were going to be good enough to keep them from disobeying. And so they followed their own understanding of how to be faithful, not the, what God had prescribed for them. You see that? Yes, that's what's going on here. Yes. I mean, that's why I'm spending this time looking at... This is not some, you know, just principle floating around out there. They're face-to-face with dying. Yeah. And all they got to do is just let their knee hit the ground and it's over with. It's settled and they can come up with all kinds of good reasons why, well, you know what? That's going to allow us to continue to represent God and the nation. That's going to allow us to continue to do... They're bringing, they could bring their own reasoning in. But with God, there's only one issue. You either obey Him or you don't. God doesn't need us to reason with Him and come to a joint conclusion about the best way to handle something. He's God. He's Adonai. And so when he tells us something in his commandments, when he tells us something in his word, the only issue is, am I going to do it or not? And so the only issue to them was whether you obey God or they disobey God. It was not, let's figure out what the best thing to do here is. But we tend to do that because we don't want to bow or burn. Or we want to bow and we want to justify why we bowed. It's called compromise. Whatever you compromise to keep, you will lose. And whatever you sacrifice, you will keep. Jesus said, whatever you let go of, you'll get back. Whatever you try to hold on, you will ultimately lose. And that's true of your life, as well as your children, as well as your job, everything. We have to be willing to let it go to Him so that He's first in our heart. So their basis for their decision not to bow was not because... God would deliver them, although they were confident that He would. But even if He wouldn't, they're still not going to bow, even at the cost of their life. Now, here's what we need to understand. How did they get there? How did they get to that point? Was it just suddenly they were inspired one day and said, you know what? We're not going to bow. No. And this is what's so important for us to understand. Because as we prepare for that moment, and it may not be some idol, and it may not be an actual fiery furnace, but there will come a test of our worship at some point. There will come a t- it's already out there. It's just very subtle right now. It's just very subtle. But the reason they were able to stand and make this decision was because they'd already made the decision before in a much smaller regard. Turn with me to chapter 1. 
And it's the little choices we make that prepare us for the big choices. Daniel chapter 1. We're going to pick up in verse 3. This is when they had been brought over out of Jerusalem over into Babylon. Then the king instructed Asphanaz, the master of his eunuchs, to bring some of the children of Israel and some of the king's descendants and some of the nobles. And the young man in whom there was no blemish and good-looking, gifted in all wisdom, possessing knowledge and quick to understand, who had the ability to serve the king and whom they might teach the, to whom they might teach the language and literature of the Chaldeans. And the king appointed for them a daily provision of the king's delicacies, that's going to become important to us, of the wine and of the wine which he drank. And three years for training for them, so that at the end of that time they might serve before the king. Now among those were the sons of Judah named Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. To them the chief of the eunuchs gave the names, these are Babylonian names, to Daniel the name Melteshazzar, to Hananiah the name Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. But Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's delicacies. So to prepare them to serve the king, to prepare them to serve Nebuchadnezzar, they were brought aside and they were to be fed for three years what the king ate. And you've got to know he ate the best food. Not just best health-wise, because the purpose of this was to make them strong and alert and sharp, but also best in terms of taste, in terms of gourmet. I mean, they were given the very best food that could be prepared for this king because it was the same food that he was given. And it's where they were delicacies. They were delicious to eat. Now, get this. In Israel, they were under a law that prescribed for them what they could eat and what they couldn't eat. It was the dietary part of the law that was handed down on Mount Sinai by God to Moses. And it's all back, if you want to go back and read it all, it's in there. So they were clearly trained. God has said, you can eat these things and you cannot eat these things. And now they're in another nation and they're under a king who's putting this food before them and saying, eat. I mean the greatest excuse to eat it is your king's telling you to eat it. What choice do I have? Not only that, it's good looking. Instead of eating those rice cakes, he's bringing before me cheesecake. Chocolate cake. You've got to choose between rice cakes. Some of you know what they are. It's just packing material. <laughs> Somebody's making a lot of money by taking their over their excess packing material and telling you it's good for you and you'll lose weight. I can do that eating a cardboard box. Well, I didn't mean to go there. But some of you understand what rice cakes are. I just lost it. Okay. <laughs> Delicacies. It's, it's, we forget. We read through stories. Put yourself in their place. You're sitting there. And you're in a foreign land. You don't know what's going to happen to you. And now you know you're being trained to be serve the king. 
and you're told you have to eat this stuff. I know, I know, I know the law back, way back in Israel says I'm not supposed to, but I'm here. I'm here. You know, it's just, I, I don't, you know, it's just, nobody's looking. But see, there was a conviction inside of them. Daniel purposed in his heart. It's interesting, there was a, an article in a newspaper that I get, national newspaper, that was written by a Hebrew rabbi talking about how he stopped eating kosher food, kosher meat. So there's two main reasons for eating kosher meat to a Jew, which is not exactly right. It's first of all, it's healthier. And secondly, it shows that we, the Israelites are different from the rest of the world because they can't eat everything the rest of the world eats. He says, but I've come to realize that the, 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 the cows or steers from which our kosher meat is, comes is m- mistreated just as much as the meat that's not kosher. And I'm so upset at that, I'm going to stop restricting myself to kosher meat. In other words, he's willing to override the law of God because of some social principle. And that's a sign of where we're going. Daniel purposed in his heart, look at that, that he would not defile himself. It's not just a matter of taste, that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's delicacy, nor the wine which he drank. Therefore he requested of the chief eunuchs, verse 8, that he might not defile himself. And God gave to Daniel favor and goodwill in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. Now Daniel's handling this in a respect to the authority, but he's making a request. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear the Lord, the king, who has appointed your food and drink, for if he's going to see your faces looking worse than these other young men who are the same age, then it's going to endanger my head before the king. Verse 11, So Daniel said to the steward whom the, of the chief eunuchs had set over them, verse 12, Please test your servants for ten days and give us just vegetables to eat and water to drink. And then look at our appearance at the end of that and the appearance of the young men who eat the portion of the king's delicacies. And then as you see, see fit, in other words, let's give a trial to this of ten days. Verse 14, So the eunuch consented with them in this matter and tested them ten days. At the end of the ten days their features appeared better and fatter in flesh than all the young men who ate the portion of the king's delicacy. And so the steward took away their portion of the delicacies and the wine which they drank and gave to them vegetables. And as for these four young men, God gave them knowledge and skill in all literature. God gave them knowledge. God gave them God gave them knowledge and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in visions and in dreams. At the end of the days, when the king had said that they should be brought before the chief of the eunuchs, brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar, and the king interviewed them, and among them there was none found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, and therefore they served before the king in all the matters of wisdom and understanding about which the king examined them. He found them ten times better than all the musicians and astrologers who were in his realm. And Daniel continued until the first year of King Cyrus. What's going on here? How does this affect us? Because we're not under that same law. What the king prescribed for them was to make them, listen carefully, more fit for his service by eating the food that he ate and that he gave them. Now, we're not talking here about rice cakes and kosher and non-kosher food. What does food represent? Food represents what you need to consume 
in order to live. Not only to consume in order to live, but God's designed it in such a way that we can enjoy it, and God wants us to enjoy it. That's why everything doesn't taste like rice cakes. That's how you look at a rice cake and a piece of cheesecake, and you can tell the difference in the two cakes and which one you want. Even right now, some of your mouths are beginning to... Just the thought of the... Now, if we could talk about rice cakes, that will all go away. Because food represents what we need to live and to enjoy life together. Now, God had told them what He wanted them to eat to sustain their life and what He didn't want them to eat in order to sustain their life. God had commanded them what they were to eat and enjoy and what they could not eat and they could not enjoy. In other words, God had decided for them what He wanted them to survive on, what He wanted to sustain their life, what He wanted as the basis for their enjoying their life, and what He didn't want them to feed on to sustain in their lives and to enjoy their lives and to complete their lives. Because God knew what would draw them to Him and what would draw them away from Him into the things that the world looked to for survival, to sustain them, to enjoy. And you and I are living in a world right now that is indoctrinating us, is because is, all of advertising, the multi-billion dollar industry that bombards us every moment on television, on your phone and on your computer, with every website you go on, there's advertising on there. And they are selling you and selling me products and services that they tell us we need in order to be strong and to be happy and to be successful. In other words, it's a menu of food for us to live on. Not just natural food, but food to be happy. Food, what, we, what do you need in your life? We're all been indoctrinated that in order to be successful, in order to be happy, we need to have certain things in our life. And if we don't have those, we can't be sustained. And that's exactly what was presented to Daniel and the three Hebrew children. And they chose, in spite of what the king was telling them they needed, in spite of how tempting and how good and how delicate it looked to them, they chose to not defile themselves. Defile means by stepping out of what God's prescribed into what the world prescribes. They chose to not defile themselves by eating of what the king told them they needed to eat to be wise and to be strong and to be successful and to be happy. And they chose instead to consume only what God provided for them and what God prescribed for them. And the fear is, well, if we do this, we're going to fall short. We're not going to make it. We're not going to measure up. But they were ten times wiser. They were ten times stronger. They were ten times more handsome. Ooh, Lord, should I go in that direction? Ladies, you better know where I'm going before I go. So much of this industry, so much of advertising, has to do with how we look on the outside. Do I have the right color makeup on? Do I, not me, but I mean the ladies. 
Do I have the right this on? Do I have the right look on? Do I have, you know, what am I putting on the outside so that I can look my best? And Pastor Sam used to have the wonderful expression, if if the barn needs painting, paint it. (laughs) That's not what we're talking about today. It's not a sin to wear makeup. See, this is all, don't go under the law with what I'm talking about. There's a principle under this. But the Bible says that God has prescribed a beauty for women that is more, that, that is a whole lot less expensive. It's free. It's eternal. It doesn't run out. And that is the hidden beauty of a humble, sweet, contrite spirit like Sarah had in her family. It's the inner person shining forth. It's the life of God in us shining forth that's the beauty. Because I've got news for you if you haven't figured it out yet. As you get older, that beauty shifts around. (laughs) Well, it used to go north, go south. Paul says, the outward man's perishing. He's going the way of all flesh. So what have we invested ourselves in? Let me go a little deeper. Because here's here's the concern. And, And this is something God's talking to me about. Every day we're being sold a bill of goods of what we need, what we need, what we have to have in order to be well and healthy and strong. We have to have, we have to have periods of recreation. We have to have sports in our lives. We have to have, oh, I'm going to step on it now. I got the ladies, I got the men now. We have to, we ha- no, it's not that there's anything wrong with those things as long as we're not feeding on them to sustain us and for happiness. And I'm finding the more I'm feeding on what God says to feed on, the less I need those other things. Because they're like, they're getting to be like rice cakes. And this is a process. But if you don't see it, you'll you'll buy into what the world tells us. We have to have it. Here's what concerns me. What are we feeding our children? What are we feeding our children of what's really important? Every Sunday I come here, just about every Sunday, and every Wednesday night I come here past soccer fields, and now it's lacrosse fields. And I see people with their kids there because in their heart what's important is that their kids get a well-balanced education and a well-balanced background, and part of that is team sports, and there's nothing wrong with that. There are wonderful lessons to be learned by team sports. But when I have my kids do that and I don't bring them to church, I have them go to the sporting event. Well, you don't understand they have practice on Sunday morning. You don't understand Wednesday night we got school the next day. You don't understand all these things because... But but what are you you sowing into your child? What, what What are you training your child is the food that's going to sustain them eternally. Or are we feeding to our children the food that this world tells us we need to feed them? 
Again, there's nothing wrong with those things until they become what we see our children need in order to be happy, well-rounded, and secure. But we're feeding them what the world believes they need. Not what God says they need. And very subtly by doing that, we're allowing the world to, to develop in them an appetite. Because you know how you develop an appetite for something? You eat it. Last night for dinner, I had Brussels sprouts. Well, you know, got into the background. And I loved them. But if you've been around here long enough, you've heard some of my stories of when I was growing up. And my mother made me eat one Brussels sprout when she served Brussels sprouts. And I was convinced, because we'd have a showdown, that Brussels sprout and I, it would sit on that plate, and my mother says, you're not getting up from this table till you eat that. And I knew that came from the pit of hell. I knew it was demonic. I knew if I ate that thing, if I put that in my mouth, I'd choke. I, I was convinced of that. I could feel it, my throat closing off as a child. I was way that with lima beans until one day I tried one. Now, I ate them because I had to, but until one day I tried one because I didn't have to, that wasn't half bad. Then I ate it again. You know what? That's pretty good. I love lima beans now. I love Brussels sprouts now. Why? Because I began to eat something I didn't think I liked the taste of. I changed my appetite by eating something. That's not just true of food. It's true of what you look at, what you listen to, what you talk about. Matthew chapter 6, Jesus says, for where your treasure is, that's where your heart will be. What is it that's treasuring your, in your life? Treasure is what you put your value in, what you put your hope in, what you get satisfaction out of. When something goes wrong in your life, when something goes wrong in your life, what's your first instinct to turn to? Is it to go shopping and buy something? Is it to turn the TV on? That's mine. My first instinct is go shut the doors, sit in the TV, watch, turn on TV. That's not going to help me. And ultimately, it doesn't comfort. So what I'm learning when something goes wrong, go pray. Oh, what a revolutionary thought that is. Go talk to God instead of letting some dumb TV talk to me. And I'm finding a desires there that I didn't have before, an appetite for a spiritual food is being developed in me that is so satisfying, so fulfilling, that the other stuffs begin to taste like rice cakes. What are you feeding to yourself? What are you feeding into your life, into your mind, into your heart, into your ears, into your eyes? What are you feeding on? What are we feeding our children? I was so concerned, and I mentioned this last week, Last year when Lafayette was here, and I forgot right now where it was, he was talking about the children of Israel when they were in captivity. And there's a verse somewhere that says that the next generation that was born in captivity did no longer knew the language of the old country. They no longer knew the language, the Hebrew language. They only knew the Chaldean language. Listen to your children and what they talk about. Listen to the songs that they sing. Listen to what they're listening to. Is it the food of this world? It's developing an appetite for it. Or is it the food of God? 
Are there songs of praise and love to God coming out of their heart? Or would they only think of singing those downstairs or in here because they have to? What's in their heart? The children of Israel made the choice in the beginning that prepared the way for the choice at the end. The decision that Jesus made in the garden that he had to pray over three times, not my will, but your will be done. That decision wasn't made in the garden. That decision started way back after he was baptized in the Holy Spirit. It says the Spirit led him into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. Ever wonder why the Spirit would lead him in the wilderness? Especially when the Lord's Prayer says, lead me not into temptation. But he was being tested so that he would learn obedience at that initial stage. And he lived that obedience out all along. So when the ultimate test came in the garden of whether he was going to go to the cross or not, he had already prepared the way for that test. And the way he passed the test in the wilderness was whatever Satan brought to him, he answered it with the word of God. He answered it with the food that God prescribed to be in his mouth and to come out of his mouth. He didn't get into reasonings with the devil. The devil appealed to his flesh and said, if you're hungry, turn these stones into bread. He didn't get into any of these things. He didn't get into pride. He simply spoke and what he'd fed on, which was the word of God. Daniel decided at the beginning, when he first found himself in a foreign land, with the opportunity that he had, he chose, and the three Hebrew children chose to not defile themselves, not to be mixed in with the others of the world, not to be mixed in with what they do and don't do. Again, I'm not saying we've got to go into a monastery and all live by ourselves. I'm not saying that at all. Don't get into some legalism here. It's what are you feeding on? What are you looking to give yourself a sense of well-being. Where does your strength come from? What do you rely on? What are the things that you have to have in your life? Do you have to have that iPhone or smartphone? Do you have to have your laptop with us? A while ago, we went away for a couple days and I had my little briefcase packed and I had my, my you know, iPad there because I got Bible studies and things on there and I had a, you know, some stuff there and had it all ready and we get in the car and we go somewhere to get to a motel and an hour and a half away and open the back door to reach out and my briefcase isn't there. I start panicking. Oh my gosh, what was in there? My iPad was in there. My Bible was in there. Oh my gosh, what am I going to do? What am I going to do for two days? I'm with my wife. Like, I have to have those things in order to exist. And I had, to, I, I had no choice. It was either I drive an hour and a half back, and if I did that, it was not going to be a pleasant time because it would have been all very obvious to her what my priority was, and to me. And so I had to make the decision I didn't need those things. I had my phone that has a Bible on my phone so I could at least read my Bible in the morning. And I chose to turn that off and just spend that time with my wife and with the Lord and resting. And you know what? I had the best time. I got the most rest, and I came back, and I actually made it. 
without surgery. I didn't have to touch that thing or look at that thing. I actually made it. Five years ago, that wouldn't have been a problem for me. I didn't have either of those things. But I've developed an appetite for them. I've got to have it. Where is it? I've got to have it. Where is it? I don't have to have it. I don't have to have it. What I have to have is Him. What I have to have is His Spirit. What I have to have, I have to feed on Him. I attended a funeral on Friday, and which Pastor Ray did, and Sometimes I need to go just observe things because it allows God to speak to me and not just be the one that's speaking. And he quoted a scripture near the end and it hit me in a way it never quite hit me before. I don't know if I can get this across to you. John 14, Jesus said, I am the way. I am the way. There's not others. I am the way. I am the truth. So whatever the world's telling us, it can't be the truth because he's the truth. So whatever the world's telling you you need, you have to have, that can't be the truth because He's the truth. That can't be the way somewhere because He's the way. I am the way. I am the truth. And listen to this. I am the life. There is according to God's food. There is according to God's prescription. There is no life, true life, out anywhere that's apart from Him. Not just eternal life, I'm going to heaven. There's no life for me during the day apart from Him. There's no life. I don't get up in the morning anymore and pray and say, well, Lord, it was nice to spend this time with you. I'll see you tomorrow morning and go off and do what I want to do. I'm learning to walk through my day because He is the truth. If I leave Him in that basement where I pray and I go off into my own day, I'm going off into other sources of truth other than Him. If I do that, I'm going under other ways that are not Him. And if I do that, I'm trying to walk in life that's not come from Him. And He is the only life. He's the only way. He's the only truth. So what we need to feed on, what God has prescribed for us to feed on, to draw our life from, our pleasure from, is Jesus. Pastor Sam used to have this. Some of his are just coming back to me lately. They're just so true. When you see people getting off into this tangent about this, this fad and off into this thing about this thing, he'd look at them and says. Have you become so bored with Jesus that he doesn't satisfy you anymore? If he has, then you're feeding on something other than the food, the manna. Oh, didn't Jesus say in John chapter 6, if you're going to belong to me, you have to eat me. You have to eat my body and you have to drink my blood. You have to take me, you have to feed on me. You have to feed on me. So well, I don't understand that yet. I don't, that doesn't do much for me. Start feeding on him. Develop an appetite for him. Start spending time talking to him, whether you hear him talk back or not, whether you sense his presence or not. Start feeding on him. Start developing an appetite for him. And the more you do that, the more you'll find you'll begin to develop a taste for Jesus. Taste and see that the Lord is good. In order to taste something, you have to initiate it, don't you? Both the cheesecake and the rice cake don't get into your mouth unless you put them there. 
In the same way, an appetite, a desire for the food that God has prescribed, we don't develop it unless we take the first step and we begin to partake of it and begin to eat of it. And as you do, those Brussels sprouts, that prayer time that seems so dead, that time in your Bible that seems like agony to go through, as you just begin to do it, what you'll find is during the day, things that you've read, things you've talked to God about will begin to come back to you and the Spirit of God will begin to touch them and begin to work on them and you'll begin to get alive and you'll begin to have, it'll begin to have meaning for you that it didn't have before and you'll begin to come back to that well, that well of living water again, begin to draw of it and you'll find you'll begin to develop an appetite. And you will eventually get hooked. You'll become addicted to the only thing you can ever be addicted to in God's eyes. And that's Him. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul. And love your neighbor as yourself. What food are we eating? Are we eating the food the world tells us we need? Or are we willing to stand up and say, I'm going to eat First, I'm going to develop an appetite first for the food that God has prescribed. Because what you choose in those decisions will decide whether you'll be willing to bow or be willing to burn. It's the choices we make now. Let's pray. Father, we thank you today for your goodness and grace. We've heard some difficult things, some challenging things because you're a father and you love your children you'll prepare us you'll speak to us you'll awaken us so that we'll see what it is we need to see Lord your pattern is we see, we feel we do first of all open our eyes to recognize the appetite that the world is trying to sell us we need the food that we're being offered, not just physical food, but spiritual food that we're being offered, the tastes that are being developed in us and our children. Open our eyes to see what's going on around us and what's already affecting us and already in our hearts and help us to repent and to come to the place that Daniel did where we consecrate ourselves to you. We determine not to defile our hearts and our minds with the food the world says we need to have. And as we do, we trust, Lord, that you will make us stronger. You will make us wiser. You will make us more beautiful than all that the world can offer us because you are the way, the truth, and the life.